electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. A mixed bag is a story on Wall Street, but we're here for what comes next. Winner stay late. Welcome to Closing Bell Overtime. I'm John Ford. Morgan Brennan is off today. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk to the CEO of chipmaker Wolf Speed, getting a healthy boost today, making up some ground after underperforming this year. Plus, we're going to break down the energy trade with RBC's Halima Croft as oil gets a lift, energy stocks outperform. And we are awaiting earnings results this hour from meme favorite GameStop and DevOps software company HashiCorp. We're going to bring you those as soon as they cross. Now let's begin with today's market action. Joining us now, Jared Woodard, B of A Securities Investment and ETF Strategist, and Robert Duran, BD8 Capital uh, Partners CIO. Guys, welcome. Jared, uh, this has been sort of a hated rally that we've been experiencing all year, it seems to me. It's been uneven, benefiting the largest technology stocks. So what do you do at this point with the Fed probably pausing, but even if not, uh, probably at about the end of its hike cycle? Yeah, hey, John, I, I think it's, uh, it's true that this has been a hated rally this year. And our advice this year has been that investors should use rallies in tech and, and, uh, and, other, and other kind of mega cap growth assets to, to take profits and to invest in other parts uh, of the market where there's better valuation opportunities. I think that the, the, the top priority for investors this year has to be to capture yield where they can to protect against deflation and the recession we think is coming, and to keep hedges in place if the stagflationary risks from 2022 prove to be a continuing threat. Okay, so how? You say preferred stock ETFs? Yeah, we think for the yield part of it, I think preferred stocks are a great place to go. Um, PFF, one of the, the ETFs we cover, these have yields approaching 7%. These are very secure dividends. Um, these are companies that, that uh, these, these are preferred stocks that have given you uh, reliable dividends, even in a financial crisis, even in 2008, only 3% of those preferred dividends ever faced a cut. Um, and these are some of the highest yields in the market today. So if you're looking for income, I think these beaten down preferreds are a top place to look. Now, Barbara, you say you're not buying here. You are trimming bloated positions, but trimming and then what? Are you rotating into something else or are you sitting on your hands for a minute to see which way things go? Yeah, I'm sitting I'm sitting tight for now. Not that it's going to be that long because I fully expect there's going to be a bit of a sell-off, which we're starting to see today in some of the tech names, which ran up. And of course, are now you're seeing momentum players get out. But I think there's a lot of money on the sideline, particularly retail, that want to be in these names. And I think you have to be in them for long term. But I'm just waiting. I had added, you know, really beefed up my tech positions several months ago, and I'm fully invested and waiting there. But I'd also added names like Starbucks or Expedia, which was super cheap, particularly compared to booking. And I'm just waiting on those. So right hmm. now, I'm not doing much. I'm waiting for some further pullbacks and some things like Salesforce, Barb- which I have as a position. But I, I wonder, there's, there's some investors who have been waiting 
all year, right? Mike Santoli was showing us yesterday how the uh, the there hasn't been this inflow into ETFs. And if you were waiting all year, it was a mistake. So I guess what we need to know from you, the folks at home probably need to know, waiting for what? How much of a pullback, right, before, before you get in? And, and what are you particularly looking to get into? Yeah, I mean, I, you're talking to me, right? Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's, that's always a question is it's not only one of the toughest things is when do you sell, you know, but when do you buy and how much of a pullback will there be? I mean, right now we're in a bit of a news vacuum, just earnings are done, the debt ceiling is resolved, and we're waiting for the Fed next week. And it's widely expected they will pause, but it's really going to be important what their guidance is and what the CPI number on Tuesday will be and the PPI to see if that little bit of of promise we saw last week with wages coming down a tad, average hourly work week coming down, signs that inflation is, is still coming down if gradually. So I just think we need to see a much deeper where there's you see much more momentum coming out of the tech names in order to make them a buy again. I think it's too early for cyclicals. Cyclicals typically do well when you're cutting interest rates, and that does not seem to be in the cards anytime soon for the Fed. If anything, they pause, maybe they go up 25 bips. They're pretty much done, that is for sure, but it certainly doesn't seem likely they're going to cut. So cyclicals are not a place to go either. So I think you just have to, financials have been oversold and they've been rallying here. So there's probably more to go there. Jared, some of the quality teams. Okay, Jared, is this a 60-40 portfolio environment? Guess yesterday was saying 50-50 even. And even within the, the, the equities portion of that, what what portion in this type of environment should you allocate to, to your higher risk? You know, our, our view has been for a few years now that the, the 60 40 portfolio you know, era is, has ended. I think 2022 was the best possible confirmation you could ever hope for that kind of a view. We think that the, the risk in the 40, the, the Treasury part from a structural point of view, ha, has never been higher. We do think there's a chance for a good Treasury trade this year. But to your question, I think in the 60%, the equities, however much you, you allocate to equities, it's important to recognize that an index like the S&P 500, these broad market benchmarks that so many investors use, have never been worse as a measure of a diversified basket of, of stocks. Everyone's speaking about narrow breadth, and that's true. But it's worth noting that the correlation among the, the individual components of the S&P 500 has never been higher. And I think that's why so many investors are asking us for alternatives, places to look, other sectors, other themes. Uh, we mentioned preferreds. I would add to that you know, sectors that have long-term exposure to real assets like gold um, mm. or, or energy materials and industrials. Those are cyclical sectors. They're going to be volatile for sure. But our view is that um, many of the, the assets that are, that are priced for infinite growth out into the future at incredibly low discount rates right. are, 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 you know, have, pose a lot more risk than investors may be pricing in, certainly okay. in, in recent weeks. So, Barbara, last word. I, I was, I'm wondering about this for investors out there. If you're thinking of maybe diversifying into small caps at a moment like this, you know, the, the Russell did pretty well today relative to everything else. But if we get that pullback that you're talking about, won't small caps likely get hit hardest? I think they will, actually. I mean, they've been performing very well the last week or so. I mean, really outperforming the S&P. And I think that's we're seeing a rotation, people looking for the laggers, looking for places that that have not run yet. But small cap is very vulnerable in a high interest rate environment, particularly if the Fed does, even if it's only 25, um, 25 bips more in July. Those are the ones, these are the small, the small companies that are most dependent on borrowing to finance their business. And that's tough for them. So I see this as a trade. And maybe you get a little bit more just because people are looking for undervalued things. But uh, I, I think it uh, will be relatively short-lived. 
All right, Barbara, Jared, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Also today, shares of Netflix hitting a 52-week high thanks to price target increases from J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo. J.P. Morgan says the company's effort to limit password sharing could fuel revenue growth. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now from the New York Stock Exchange to break down the company's valuation. Mike. Yeah, John, Netflix, so at a 52-week high, but as this chart shows, uh, it is certainly only about halfway back to its all-time high after really crashing from close to 700 down to like 175 at the lows. Now, over here, uh, the market was saying there is no valuation too high to pay for the disruptive, dominant, secular winners long-term. Then we had the massive uh, liquidation in all of those really highly valued growth stocks. Down here, I think you basically had the idea that we don't know if the streaming is really a good business, if they can sustainably be profitable. There's too much competition. It looked like profitless prosperity in the entire industry. And now it's about the earnings model is starting to kick in and work. And earnings estimates are going up. Find it interesting, the 1,000-day moving average, you don't look at it very much. It's a slow-moving trend line. It's about 200 weeks, so it's multiple years. This kind of halfway back move uh, from the lows got us right there. So we'll see if there's more juice to it. It's still relying on things like 2025 earnings estimates. Maybe you're at 20-ish times that number. So it seems like it's getting rich again based on earnings. We'll see if this can continue. Now, take a look at Netflix valuation on a forward P.E. basis on next year's earnings relative to Disney. Uh, And you see what's happened here. This is when it was a very young, fast-growing growth stock, and Disney was a traditional media stock. They converged right in here as everyone got overexcited about Disney Plus and thought that during the pandemic that was going to be the winner. They've crossed back over again. So Netflix reestablishes the premium. It probably makes sense based on the the sort of predictable metrics and the fact that it's the cleaning, cleanest story in streaming. So we'll see if uh, if that can continue from here. But as I say, kind of stretching the valuation based on the visible earnings. All right, Mike, we'll hear from you, of course, later in the show right now. Breaking news on GameStop, a bit of Game of Thrones there. Steve Kovac has the details. Yeah, exactly right, John. So GameStop has fired its CEO, Matt Furlong. He's been the CEO since 2021, and they have the board has elected Ryan Cohen, who we all know. He is now executive chairman of GameStop. They do not have, in this brief statement we got from GameStop, any word on who the new CEO would be or, or anything related to a search there, but we're watching shares down about 5%. And I'll just note we're expecting any minute now to get their quarterly earnings come in. So I'll be back with more. Okay, we'll certainly be looking for those and any more details. They don't even mention uh, Matt Furlong's name in this release. Uh, That is the former CEO. For more on GameStop and how now executive chairman Ryan Cohen got legions of retail investors to follow his every move, do not miss the CNBC documentary Making of the Meme King. That is Friday, 8 p.m. After the break, we're going to talk to the CEO of Wolfspeed, which makes semiconductors for the EV industry, among other things. We'll break down today's pop, the stock's lagging performance this year, manufacturing issues, silicon carbide, when we come right back. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older 
like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Investors were feeling the need for wolf speed today. Shares closing 4% higher. It's not the only silicon carbide maker jumping today. Microchip, Mobileye, NXP, all ending the day in the green. So far this year, Wolfspeed is lagging behind its peers, down about 25%. Joining us now, Wolfspeed CEO Greg Lowe. Greg, uh, good to have you. So after last quarter and uh, the, the manufacturing difficulties you talked about with your Durham facility supplying your Mohawk Valley uh, facility, you had some repricing going on. How is that process right now working out for you? Give us an update because... Um, that, that manufacturing uh, facility that you have, silicon carbide, in New York is a big part of what investors need to know about. Thanks a lot for having me, John. And, and yeah, we did have some challenges bringing on our Durham uh, crystal growth operation. We had some supply chain issues that created a bit of a, a lag on that. And that factory then feeds the Mohawk Valley factory in New York. Uh, essentially, those problems have now been resolved. Um, the factory is up and running. The crystal growth machines are, are operating as uh, as planned. And so we're now that's kind of, uh, you know, beyond behind us now. And, you know, we're 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 basically ramping the world's largest uh, and world's only 200 millimeter uh, silicon carbide crystal uh, manufacturing plant in New York. And, you know, obviously getting those problems, uh, those challenges behind us has been really positive for us. We're really looking forward to ramping that um, facility kind of as we speak. How recession dependent is the demand for uh, these power systems that are going to be reliant on a silicon carbide? Well, basically, we have a very strong secular growth in silicon carbide. The world is moving from silicon, which has been the basis of semiconductor chips, to silicon carbide. And and I think that is something that is non-stoppable right now. And it's simply because silicon carbide is substantially more energy efficient. What that means is, um, if you use silicon carbide in an electric car, for instance, your car is going to go further with the same amount of battery, five to fifteen percent further. Your car is going to charge faster. If you're using silicon carbide in a solar field, more of the sun's energy is actually going to get to the grid because we're, we're wasting less of it. So, I think these trends are are really unstoppable. And what we're looking at is a is a decade long substantial growth opportunity for us with uh, with silicon carbide as a secular demand trend. There's a lot of time in a decade for competitors to get into the game. And we've seen some moves today uh, with a, a China based partnership and for investors to sort of miscalculate when the payoff is going to come. So what do you consider your strategic advantages to be? Um, whether domestic manufacturing plays into that or not, and what are the trade-offs with costs that arise because of it? Well, we are the world's largest producer of silicon carbide materials. We produce about 60% of it today, and so we have a huge commanding lead on that. That scale advantage allows us to drive manufacturing improvements, which drives costs down, which allows us then to get more business, which increases our scale, and we sort of created this... this, um, uh, a circular effect, if you will, 
uh, of improving our business. We're increasing that scale substantially as we bring on the Mohawk Valley facility, the world's largest uh, silicon carbide uh, manufacturing plant, and the only one at 200 millimeters. We've been in this business for 35 years, and what I can tell you, it's it's not an easy business. And um, you know, uh, and what we're focusing on right now is continuing to drive scale, hmm. continuing to drive costs, and you know, try and 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 really maintaining that leadership role. So why why is Tesla sitting this out? Right, uh, said it was going to use 75 percent fewer. Uh, silicon carbide transistors and its powertrains a few months ago. It's a really big player and, and probably even more important than that. It's sort of a standard bearer for what a lot of people think about when they think about uh, power efficiency in the future of EVs. Uh, what's it going to take to convince Elon Musk of this trajectory? Well, what, what effectively Tesla said during that announcement was that they were going to use, uh, they were going to install an inverter in an entry-level car using 75% less silicon carbide. Our viewpoint is that's actually incremental growth for us because we did not anticipate that silicon carbide would actually reach entry-level vehicles. Um, they didn't make any mention about reduction of silicon carbide for their more mid-size or mid-range and, um, and higher-end vehicles. So our viewpoint is, is that this is actually incrementally positive for the adoption of silicon carbide into more entry-level vehicles. Um, I'm just visiting with a whole bunch of customers here today up in Detroit, and the the you know the commentary that I'm hearing back from customers is silicon carbide is being adopted across the vast majority of their platforms. All right, great detail, Greg Lowe of Woolspeed. Thank you. Thank you, John. Well, GameStop earnings we were waiting for are out. Steve Kovac, how do the numbers look? Yeah, John, and shares are down 17% now. Uh, we do not compare uh, the results to uh, any estimates here because of the thin coverage, but let me give you the results. A loss per share of 17 cents and revenue coming in at $1.24 billion. And of course, as I was just told you a few minutes ago, CEO Matt uh, Furlong has been fired by the board. He's been CEO for about two years there. And Ryan Cohen elected executive chairman. No word yet on what that means for future CEO. And I would also note, uh, no conference call today, so we're not going to get any more color than what I just gave you there, John. Wow. Um, yeah, no more color, no more. Uh, we'll, we'll watch that one. That one's down quite a bit. Uh, Steve Kovac, thank you. Thanks. Speaking of down quite a bit, HashiCorp earnings are out. The company reporting a $0.07 loss per share, smaller than the $0.14 cent loss analysts had been expecting. Revenues also topping estimates at $138 million versus expectations for $133 million. So why is it down? Well, the company's outlook mostly coming in weaker than expected, though the company's full-year loss per share guidance above estimates. HashiCorp also announcing an 8% reduction to its workforce. The CEO, Dave McJanet, is going to break down those results tomorrow right here on Overtime. And a firm today in fintech getting an early boost after Amazon said it would integrate some of a firm's features into Amazon Pay. We will break down that move and the broader bump for fintech stocks right after this break. Plus, we're going to talk much more about breaking news on GameStop with the CEO out, Ryan Cohen, ex uh, elevated now to executive chairman when Overtime returns. Selling smoothies is what I do, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. 
Affirm shares popping today, but closing near session lows. The company announcing customers will now be able to use its adaptive checkout feature with some merchants on Amazon Pay. It's been a strong month for fintech names more broadly. Affirm and SoFi both up more than 50% in that time. Square up 12%. Joining us now, Eugene Samuni, uh, research analyst at SVB Moffitt Nathanson. Uh, Eugene, how much of this is just how much some of these names had sold off before this point? Or is there reason why investors should feel more optimistic about maybe some of these less crypto exposed names? Yeah, yeah. Well, hi, John. Good to be on the show. Uh, absolutely. Uh, there's definitely uh, we uh, sold off a lot. And uh, now there's an opportunity for, for an upswing. That's that's definitely a big theme in, uh, in fintech after a very tough period. But each one of these companies did have, uh, you know, some specific factors that have helped it. You mentioned a couple of things about a firm. SoFi has also had specific factors that helped it. So you do have to look company by company. But taking a step back on fintech overall, our perspective, cyclical headwinds to fintech, unfortunately, remain strong. And we're not out of the woods yet. But the secular story is probably, you know, as strong as well. And so what we are on the lookout for is long-term winners that really will survive this fintech winter and it will emerge on the other side as, uh, as big winners in this space. And how do you define those? How do you separate these things by category? Because some, you know, SoFi is a bank, uh, our yeah. firm is certainly not. Some other yeah. names in the category cater more to small and medium business or even enterprise. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a billion dollar question here. Look. Um, FinTech is a, is, a, is a humongous space, so you really do have to be specific about what you're looking at. Um, we do like, you know, SoFi Firm, these are digital lenders. So, so that's been a very successful category of FinTech prior to, uh, you know, 2022. Has been really hit hard during 2022, but we do think there is, a, you know, a secular future for this industry. And what we do look for with digital lenders, we do like companies that are diversified, uh, so that offer a multiple different products become more of a financial services platform versus kind of a one-hit wonder. And secondly, access to low-cost, stable financing. That's critical. That's been shown to be critical, you know, during these tough times. And you mentioned SoFi is a licensed bank now. That's one of the reasons, for example, we like SoFi as a longer-term winner because it does have this access to low-cost, stable financing in form of in form of retail deposit, which by the way would a firm currently does not have. So does that mean more need to become banks? Uh well that's a, a you know there's certainly plus and minuses to being a bank. Uh you know access to retail deposit is a huge uh, is a huge plus. Uh huge amount of regulatory oversight uh is a is a big minus. So each company has to weigh it and uh I wouldn't say that being a bank is the only, you know, path to um, to being a long-term winner in in this space. But in our view, more of these players will need to consider that as uh, as as they mature. Yes. How do you look at players like Credit Karma, which is part of Intuit, versus Nerd Wallet, which is uh, smaller cap and and independent, diversifying as you mentioned into areas like insurance? Yeah, look, we so we like the uh, you know maybe maybe a bigger concept here. Uh, you know, the uh, the boom period for fintechs, for, for digital lenders, et cetera, has created a lot of uh, a lot of smaller companies, right, that, that do specific things. Some of them focus on lending, some of them focused on on helping folks budget, et cetera, credit karma, nerd wallet are examples of those. Our general view is it's hard for those companies to survive on their own. 
because you know offering one product very tough to uh, attract customers and even harder to retain customers uh, with one product. Easier to do in a diversified offering, and so some of this consolidation that has happened, for example, you know, Intuit um, acquiring some of these platforms um, is logical to us. Makes a lot of sense, and we, we expect more of that. So you expect M and A? That doesn't necessarily make these smaller names a bad investment, right? Uh, no. Well, yeah, that that's a good point. Uh, some of this, uh, some of this will be absorbed. Um, no doubt, some of them will 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 just uh, will just die out uh, as. Uh, as the sector evolves, but yes, some of these uh, you know small names could be attractive uh, M and A opportunities for for bigger names, and and, and therefore could uh, could be attractive investments. I agree. Yeah. All right, Eugene. Thank you. Yeah, of course, Eugene Simoni. Now, speaking of fintech, earlier today I spoke with Brex co CEO and co founder Henrique Dubagras. Brex provides fintech services for startups. It hit a milestone with two of its latest products, reaching a hundred million dollars in annualized recurring revenue. Dubergrass told me part of what's driven that is in the wake of the SVB collapse, Brex has become a flexible option for customers to diversify their bank accounts. I would say at that time, we didn't know if this was going to be net positive or net negative for us. Um, it was still unclear. The market was developing and everything was happening very quickly. Um, turned out to be net positive. And the reason is uh, now, as customers want to have multiple bank accounts, it's easier for us to win one of three than one of one. And we're being chosen as kind of like one of three because the easiness of like dealing with us day to day. So we're become the kind of like day to day partner versus where you park, you know, 90% of your money. Remember, we had him on overtime talking about trying to shore up uh, startups access to capital as that SVB uh, bank run was playing out. He also told me regional banks are looking for tech that helps them compete with the larger banks. Investors feeling a bit better about those prospects this week, it seems, with the KRE regional bank index up almost, well, a little more than 3% today. Time for a CNBC News update now with Seema Modi. Seema. Hey, John, here's what's happening at this hour. Former President Donald Trump told the New York Times he has not been told he's getting indicted. The comment was in response to a report by one of his allies that claimed he was sent a target letter. A federal grand jury is meeting in Florida in special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents. Trump has denied wrongdoing on many occasions. Supreme Court Justice, Justice Clarence Thomas postponing his annual financial disclosure, asking for more time to prepare the document. He is facing scrutiny for accepting pricey vacations and gifts from Republican billionaire Harlan Crow. Thomas will get 90 more days to submit the disclosure. Justice Samuel Alito also requesting an extension. Tupac Shakur now has a Hollywood star. It was accepted today by the rapper's sister. The late artist has sold over 75 million records worldwide. He's also the first solo hip-hop artist to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame during the first year he was eligible. John, back to you. Seema, thank you. After the break, Wedbush analyst Michael Pachter joins us to talk about that breaking news this hour on GameStop. CEO Matt Furlong out Ryan Cohen elevated to executive chairman from chairman when overtime comes right back. Welcome back. Shares of GameStop falling hard in the after hour session, down more than 20%. Longs might want to throw their controllers at the screen. Uh, they reported results this hour. The big news 
The CEO, Matt Furlong, out at the company. Ryan Cohen has been elected executive chairman, effective immediately. The company is saying in a statement, Mr. Cohen's responsibilities include capital allocation and overseeing management. What's left of it? Let's bring in Wedbush analyst Michael Pachter to discuss. He has a sell rating, price of 650. Closer to closer to that, uh, you're right on the sell. Is the dream over? Oh, I think the dream never started. Uh, you know, you guys have a documentary out right now. I think it came out yesterday called The Meme King, calling Cohen a meme king. He's the queen of hearts. You know, he was displeased and he said off with his head to Furlong. That's the CEO's name that they shall not name. I mean, it's like if he said his name in the press release, he'd be, he'd be uh, cursed. Um, they they brought three Amazon executives in three years ago and they managed to, one departed after seven months. I think she figured it out quickly. Uh, the other was fired after less than two years and the third one was fired after just under three years. So Cohen brings people in, uh, doesn't actually tell them what to do and they don't fix anything and they're gone. Um, I don't think he has the first clue how to turn this company around. And the truth is, I don't think they can turn it around. I think that they should be in harvest mode, trying to generate profits on a smaller footprint, and they're just not doing that. I mean, are, are they going to figure out how to be Domino's Pizza and not Blockbuster here somehow? Because so many trends in gaming are going against them. We just had Apple announce the Vision Pro. You can bet that's going to operate on an app store. You're not going to be going to GameStop to get games for your Vision Pro. And then you've got the, the cloud gaming and streaming happening. Microsoft pushing hard on that as well as others. What's, what's the path to life here? What do they have to do? So Cohen's solution is blockchain gaming and, of course, you know, if you own a console, an Xbox or a PlayStation, you think of GameStop first if you're going to play a blockchain game. You would never think to actually go to your PC. Um, the guy has no clue, not the first clue. They are Blockbuster. And uh, absolutely, physical retail is going away. It's not going away tomorrow. It's going away when the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox um, Series X are done with their life cycles. It's got another five years, maybe six or seven but they should be harvesting that cash and trying to figure out what they can do with it. Uh, instead, he's not paying his bills. Take a look at their accounts payable. 50% of revenue in the quarter is accounts payable. They literally have six weeks outstanding of payables. If they keep that up, no one's gonna advance them any more, any more product. So they're gonna, they're, they're gonna accelerate their demise. I think it's really crazy. Yeah, I guess not paying your bills is, is tougher when you need to be advanced product, Elon Musk doesn't have that problem at Twitter. Uh, so this is tough to short, though, I imagine, because there's a lot of, of excitement. This used to be a meme stock, so it could, it could go any way on you, couldn't it? It could, and, and it still is a meme stock. And, you know, I, I think I, in the documentary, I'm not sure they, they use this piece, but I called him the Pied Piper. And, and the retail investors are the rats following him off the cliff. And, and I, they don't see it coming. They're happy. They're listening to his hyped tune, and they think he's a genius. I mean, I'm sure he is a genius in, in other areas, not in games. So what is the anti-game stop, though? We, we know how you feel about that. But in this space, um, what, are you, what are you extra long? Uh, Activision, because the Microsoft deal is going to happen. Uh, Microsoft, I don't cover, but Microsoft's going to absolutely dominate with Game Pass. Um, I like the the tools guy Unity. I think they're really really interesting here. 
Um, for other reasons, I like Netflix as well. Um, but Activision's the, the easy money, 80 to 95, probably going to happen in the next month or so. Do you have a sense of what studio is best positioned in mixed reality? Well, you know, it, it's it's all going to be IP-based, but, I mean, you tell me, we, we talked this past week about uh, the price point, you know, how many Vision Pros is Apple going to sell? Um, that's not going to be a giant install base for another three or four years. So um, Disney was smart to get in early, but game-wise, I'd say the sports simulation games probably have the best chance with EA. Yeah, but whoever comes out with the Halo of mixed reality might get a valuation pop, I imagine. We'll see. Michael Pachter, thank you. Thank you, John. After the break, stronger than the average bear. Mike Santoli is going to look at how the current market cycle compares to historical periods and why this time might be different when overtime's right back. Well, how bad is the smoke in the Mid-Atlantic? Major League Basketball, uh, Baseball sorry, just announcing it is postponing tonight's scheduled games between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Detroit Tigers and the game between the New York Yankees and the Chicago White Sox, and that is because of hazardous air quality conditions in both New York and Philadelphia due to Canadian wildfires. Those wildfires have also had a big impact on air traffic in the Northeast. Let's bring in Phil LeBeau with the latest details. Phil? You know, John, briefly earlier today, there was a complete pause on new aircraft coming in to LaGuardia. Now they are allowing aircraft once again. So here's an update on where things stand. All of the New York City airports, the FAA says that they have slowed down the level of traffic coming into those airports, obviously because of reduced visibility. They are also slowing down traffic into Philadelphia because of the reduced visibility. Whether or not we see this clear out to a point where they can increase the flow of traffic a little bit later on, that remains to be seen, John. It literally is changing hour by hour because there was one point where they were like, look, we're down to a half mile of visibility in Newark. Now, as you take a look at Newark, it might be a little bit better than that. So it completely depends on how quickly uh, the smoke dissipates and the visibility improves. But as of now, New York and Philly have reduced traffic coming into their airports. At the point where we should be watching cancellations, are, are there hubs that are being particularly affected here? Sure, they're hubs. Yeah, New York is, is a hub. Newark is the hub for, for United. New York is also a hub for American and for Delta and JetBlue. So there is an impact here. But when we've reached out to the airlines, John, all of them have said the same thing. Because it is so fluid, they're being cautious about preemptive cancellations. They, there is some of that going on, but not widespread because at this point, it may clear up within a couple of hours and they can start to have flights come in again. So that's that's the hope among the airlines at this point. Oh, wow. Phil LeBeau, thank you. Now let's get back to Mike Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange. Mike, what about the bears? <laughs> well, like to compare this current market cycle with some of the bigger bear markets in history. And this was a, a, a comparison that became very popular in the latter part of last year. When you see here, this 2022 means that was the market path after the, the 2022 all-time market peak. And these other ones are some of the more devastating bear markets, actually the worst bear markets in the last 80 years or so, which began in 2007, 73, and 2000. And you can see right around here, that's in the latter part of last year, people were, some people were saying 
Don't take too much comfort in the fact that the market has had this nice lift, this rally off the October low, because you've had that in the past in prior bear markets and you've gone on to make new lows. Now what you see is real separation from the other trajectories that are on this chart. It doesn't mean that we've gotten escape velocity because there's also some valid criticism that you have not seen the kind of really aggressive momentum and the broad participation you often see at the beginning of a true early bull market move. Uh, So it's somewhere in between. I'm not that caught up in labeling what we're in right now, but it's also pretty much the case that you can't say any of these patterns was deterministic. One final point. This shows you that the current cycle rushed down to a 20 percent decline much more quickly than the other ones did. It seems like we got some stuff out of the way. It's a pretty compressed cycle. Wouldn't surprise me to go broadly sideways for quite a while from here, John. Yeah, Mike, uh, I'm looking at the green one. Is that 2000? That you got there. Yeah, the one absolutely. That yeah. So that one had a period where it kind of went sideways and maybe up a little as well. Absolutely. Are there lessons to learn from that? Well, exactly. So that right there, let me eyeball it here. I believe that's 9 11. So that was the sell off that really exacerbated. You were already in a bear market for like a year and a half by that point, and it seemed as if a lot of it was wrung out. And you ran into, yes, a recession, yet an earnings decline but also just the reckoning of of all that market cap in tech and telecom that was continuing to weigh on the indexes. You had Enron, WorldCom, a lot of exacerbating factors that really piled on uh, and had it took, you know, another year before you really got to something that looked like a reliable low. Yeah, um, that churning sideways, boy, that can be mind numbing. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you. Amazon reportedly planning to launch an ad-supported tier for Prime Video. The reporter behind that story is going to join us when Overtime returns. Amazon is reportedly set to become the next streaming service to offer an ad-supported tier following similar moves by Netflix and Disney. And our parent Comcast with Peacock was there all along. The Wall Street Journal also reporting Amazon might include the ad-based services of Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount into its prime video channels. Let's bring in the reporter who broke that story, Jessica Tunkel from the Wall Street Journal. Jessica, um, the reasons for doing this, I guess, are pretty clear. But putting ads into things in a service that you didn't originally planned can be harder than it seems, right? You have to rework deals? They do have to rework deals. Uh, You know, they've licensed content from everyone from Warner to Paramount to Disney, and they're going to have to rework all those deals. Now, some of those deals, they already have the rights to put ads in. Uh, They have a separate service called Freebie, which is a free ad-supported service that is separate from Prime Video, but you can get a lot of the content in Prime Video. So they do have some of those rights already, but they are going to have to rework a lot of some of those arrangements. So what's really going on here? Because adding ads to services that didn't have them before has become, it seems, a way to raise prices or at least raise the value that you're getting from the content without raising prices as quickly. And at the same time, some of these streamers are pulling content that people expected to be there forever because there's a cost associated with it. Yeah, I mean, look, streaming is expensive business to be in, right? They're all trying to figure out how to make their businesses profitable. So getting into advertising raises the revenue you get per user because you're getting advertising revenue on top of the subscriber revenue. So it's just another way to kind of get more money out of it. I mean, for Amazon specifically, Amazon's ad business outside of just streaming video for a minute has been a constantly growing business the past few years. And so they want to continue to grow that business. If they're looking to control costs, we got strikes happening right now. 
writers, the actors have authorized one. We'll see what happens. Is that a real danger for this nascent uh, streaming industry because of the content they're trying to create? Or is it a boon for the one with libraries because people are going to turn to them when they want to watch something? I mean, that's a great question. I think it depends on how long the strike lasts, right? I mean, I think if we go into the fall and the strike is continuing, even those companies with more vast libraries, I mean, viewers are going to want to see their new shows where, you know, I'm waiting for the next, you know, series of uh, severance. So I think that's going to be an issue the longer it goes. But for right now, I do think, to your point, a lot of studios are using it as a reason to cut costs. Does it strengthen the hand of live sports where, I mean... It's live. You don't have to worry about the scripted part. And, and they do command quite a bit of advertising revenue as well as attention, as we're, as we're seeing in the NBA finals, the one that they, everybody thought we didn't want. Absolutely. I mean, look, I don't think live sports needs more of a hand. They have a, they have a lot of leverage here. The NBA rights is something that everyone's going to be talking about for the next several months as like every everyone, including Amazon, as we reported, is discussing bidding for those rights. So, uh, yes, they have a lot of leverage. The tech giants, are they paying more or, or less of a role in the market, the economy that we're in right now uh, when it comes to bidding for those rights? A hundred percent more. There's no question that you're going to see Amazon and Apple and potentially others bid for those rights. I mean, I, th I don't think, you know, I think it'll be a handful, and this has been reported, a handful of players that will win those rights, but you'll definitely see a streaming player in there. All right. Jessica, thank you. Thanks Jessica so much. From the Wall Street Journal. Energy, the best performing sector so far this month as oil prices rebound. Up next, RBC Capital Markets Global Head of Commodity Strategy, Halima Croft, on whether this energy rally is for real. Take another look, if you dare, at shares of GameStop plunging after hours down about 20%. The company announcing earlier this hour it had fired its CEO and Ryan Cohen has been elected not just chairman, but executive chairman of the board. Ryan Cohen tweeting about 20 minutes ago, not for long. Now, the outgoing CEO's name is Matt Furlong. I'm a bit of a pun artist myself, so that's where my mind immediately went. And he is known for his tweets not to be that serious. But what is serious for investors is figuring out what's next for GameStop. Meanwhile, let's turn to energy. The top sector today and so far this month, led by a rally in names like Halliburton and Baker Hughes, and West Texas crude is up 1% as the Saudi output cut from the weekend hangs over the oil market. Joining us now is Halima Croft, RBC Capital Markets, Global Head of Commodity Strategy, and a CNBC contributor. Halima, is a bottom in for oil? Is that what this is about? Or is that kind of wishful thinking given this weak Chinese export data? I mean, I think what the Saudis wanted to signal to the market with their million barrel a day unilateral cut that they announced over the weekend is they are willing to put in a floor. They did a surprise cut in April. And yes, you've not seen this massive rally on the back of these cuts. But I think the message the Saudis want to say is if you want to get short on oil, 
think twice. We're standing here with our barrel balance sheet to really defend the floor. And I think they look at the back half of the year and say it's going to be better from a demand perspective. I mean, you focus on the, the Chinese data in terms of exports. But if you look at, for example, Indian oil import data, that is very strong. And so I think they believe that the market will turn. And these cuts are designed to ensure that they get a better outlook in the back half of the year. Well, yeah, I know that's what the Saudis want us to think. But is this a concrete floor or is this, I mean, what are the chances of falling through it here? I mean, if we get more heavy data, if we get a, a bit more of a recession, people are expecting a recession, at least in the U.S., in the back half of the year. What are the risks to that floor? I mean, I think there's a dislocation right now between the financial and physical markets. I mean, I think oil's biggest headwind are these macro sentiments, these wall of worries about Chinese, you know, manufacturing data potential recession. But if you look at the physical markets, you know, we do have, you know, demand for oil is rising. We're not in a contractionary situation. And we do have now significant supply coming off. I mean, one of the points that I've made about this OPEC cut is the fact that the Saudis announced it unilaterally. If the Saudis say they're going to cut, the Saudis will cut. If you have a sort of collective OPEC then you start wondering, well, really, will the Russians do it? Will these other countries do it? But I think the Saudis mean business. So come July, we will have an additional million barrels off the market. Also, John, the U.S. SPR sale winds down in June. So that, again, is something that should make the physical markets tighter. But again, you do have these macro concerns, and oil can certainly trade lower based on broader macro concerns. But from the physical market perspective, it should be a better back half of the year. So based on all of that, why do you like some of the names that you like? Uh, because of their exposure or lack of exposure where? I mentioned Halliburton and Baker Hughes. Well, I'm not an equity analyst, John. So I can tell you when we think about, you know, from a commodity perspective, you asked, like, why do you still think there's a path to, for example, you know, Brent returning to the 90s? Right. You know, we continue to have the view that, again, the physical market should be more constructive in the back half of the year. And now that we have this Saudi cut, you know, you put that into your balances when you think about inventory draws that we should be seeing coming in the back half of the year. It'll so be I should have said, OK, why does one like the names that one likes? That's a possible reason why those names are moving higher in this market. Yes. And again, one of the things I think we should all be watching for, because what the Saudis announced over the weekend in OPEC was a one-month million barrel a day cut. Everybody's going back to Vienna in July for the OPEC seminar. And the key thing to watch will be does the Saudis make the decision to extend this additional cut on a multi-month basis? So does summer travel matter at all to this market right now, or is it all about supply? I mean, there, it, it certainly matters on demand, certainly in terms of seasonality. And so we will be looking to what type of summer driving season do we get in the United States? We will be looking at our people, you know, traveling for the summer. I mean, that is a, a big catalyst when we think about seasonality in terms of oil. But certainly, you know, supply matters. I mean, one of the bearish overhangs in this market has been the fact that Russian production has held up despite the sanctions. There had been this expectation. Think about where oil was a year ago, $50 mm. higher, because right. there had been this view that the price caps would cause Russian oil to come off the market. All right, we're going to Halima, we're gonna have to leave it yeah. there. I'm thank out you. of show. Halima Kraft, thank you. That's going to do it for overtime. Fast Money starts right now. I know how to run a hair salon. But for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. She's a small business owner, too, so she knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, 
State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.